0: This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers
1: in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott. This is Paul Verschur with the Convergent Science Network podcast. And in this episode, I'm speaking with uh, Giovanni Pizzullo, who is a speaker at our uh, summer school, Barcelona Cognition, Brain and Technology Summer School. And uh, Giovanni, you started out with um, investigating this whole issue of the predictive brain. Yes. Right? So, what does it mean for your predictive
0: brain exactly? Well, uh, in a sense, the the predictive brain is just uh, a big idea. Well, the idea is that the brain it's not a passive uh, organ so it, rather than just sitting down and waiting for the next stimulus in a sense it really always tries to uh, anticipate what comes next to set up some internal goals and uh, and so to have some big internal processing so rather than being stimulus based it's really trying to to anticipate the necessities or or maybe the opportunities for action mm-hmm. so that's really the big principle that drives all the brain processing Because now, because the the brain has some predictions, some goals, it can really organize its sensory processing, its attention processes and uh, its motor preparation processes for quickly uh, responding and doing some adaptive actions. So to do that, it has to be predictive and proactive. Mm
1: -hmm. So but then where, where does that really start? What are the good examples of this kind of prediction?
0: Well, uh, in the literature, there are uh, many, many uh, partially disconnected literature on prediction. So predictions in sensory processing, predictions in the motor domain, predictions also in higher cognition in that, for instance, I can try to anticipate what your next question will be. So all these literatures can, can, well, now proceed a little bit disconnected. But for instance, in the, in the sensory domain, uh, you see a lot of predictive stuff going on, uh, such as the anticipation of the next stimulus uh, in, the, in the motor control domain. you really have to get rid of what are the consequences of your action uh, for many reasons. One big reason in the motor domain is that sensory perception, they are very ambiguous. So by also predicting what comes next, you better estimate the state of the world. Another big reason is for decision-making. So if you can really anticipate what the effects of your action are, then you can also select among different courses of actions beforehand. Uh, so such as, for instance, if I anticipate that by going left, I will get some big reward. But, and by going right, I, I will get some, some big punishment then. That's the decision. Mm-hmm.
1: But now, in some sense, let's say also the physiological study of learning that started with Pavlov, um, one of the first observations of Pavlov was was that the brain is predicting, right? So yes. um, that's also a key feature of classical conditioning. So in some sense, the concept of prediction is with us for a long time. And it, as some speakers have said, like sometimes certain things get so old that they sound new again, right? So, <laughs> so what is actually really new in, in this current movement of, uh, of the brain as a predictor?
0: Well, um, actually, I I completely agree that also in classical conditioning, you have this predicting dynamics going on. But I think that we we should try to really distinguish uh, at least two kinds of predictions. Well, it's not a sharp distinction, but it's useful to do probably. So one is an implicit kind of prediction in that, for instance, in the the conditioning studies. So uh, a stimulus, uh, which is typically highly predictive of another stimulus, which is in turn highly predictive of reward. So the first stimulus, which is predictive of another stimulus, it becomes itself good to achieve. So in that that case, the brain becomes uh, implicitly predictive in that it stores the relationships between the first and the second stimulus. But... To do that, you don't really need to to maintain into your memory or to an internal representation of the predictive relation between the two stimuli. You just attach some good uh, label to the the first stimulus. Mm -hmm. Whereas uh, there is a second kind of prediction, which is a more explicit prediction, in which you keep uh, into your uh, brain some model of the environment. So uh, the point is that uh, in the first case, you really uh, have some implicit mechanism that link good or bad to sequences of things, whereas in the second mechanism, you also maintain a model of these sequences of things. So you, you, uh, for instance, in the motor domain, uh, you can, for instance, let's say you have to grasp a moving ball. There are two different ways to do that. So one way is to look at the moving ball and then uh, jump to some future state to some future state that the ball will uh, uh, will reach at some point, this can be done in two ways. The first way is just learning the contingencies automatically. So I know that if I see some uh, the ball moving, then I have to to go to some um, to some position which is not the current position but the future poti- position without even anticipating that position explicitly. You can do that automatically. The second way to do that is is uh, really uh, doing a, a f- what is called a forward model, so a predictive model that really tells you where the ball will be in the future, use the fo- this forward model online, so this predictive mechanism online, and then uh, move the hand to, to the predicted position. So, To to recapitulate this idea, there are implicit and explicit mechanisms. And the novelty of the predictive brain hypothesis, if you want, is that the hypothesis that the brain systematically incorporates uh, regularities of the external environment in a structured way so as to form uh, strong models, statistical models, for instance, of the regularities of the external environment. And then it systematically uses these uh, models. To plan what to do next and also to drive perception, to drive attention mm-hmm. and so on. So whereas in the in the first formulation of prediction uh, it, it was more an implicit prediction in the predictive brain hypothesis at least in some of its formulation, it's much more about building models of the world on top of which you can run explicit predictions.
1: Mm-hmm. Right so then if you would look at let's say the theoretical literature on, on the predictive brain, what in your mind are right now then the outstanding examples of, of this approach?
0: Well, uh, there are um, many of them. So uh, probably in, the, in um, a very famous paper by uh, Rao and Ballard, it was already in the 99, if I remember well, it was uh, about this predictive coding idea. Predictive coding idea in perception. So the idea is that the brain continuously generates prediction about the stimulus and, uh, and it uses uh, these uh, predictions in a top-down manner whereas it uses prediction errors, so the difference between the prediction and uh, the sensory evidence, uh, as a a revision mechanism. So that was a a milestone in a sense. But, uh, well, there are many other papers. Now there is a very big framework put forward by Carl Friston, which is called the free energy uh, framework or the active inference framework. In that sense, Friston really tries to look at the whole brain, not not just the the perceptual system, as a big prediction machine. Uh, there are many other frameworks, one, one is put forward by Moshibar, again in the perceptual domain, whereas in the motor domain, also the, the leading view, one of the most authoritative view put forward by people uh, such as Danny Wolpert or uh, by Shadmer or many other people, is, is that, mo- that in reality what you really predict is the sensory consequences of your actions. So that framework uh, is more tied to motor predictions. Uh, mm-hmm. Other people, such as Mark Charro or others, they have tried to expand this framework from the, the prediction of the sensory consequences of actions to more complicated forms of cognition, such as reusing this prediction for understanding of the action of others, uh, such as use, reusing this prediction for imagery, and so mm-hmm. thinking at more abstract situations. So I would say that there are many uh, many fields in which prediction have been studied. And, um uh, and also some converging frameworks
1: right so now if we if we talk about your own experiments in in let's say the role of prediction in problem solving you you show some examples of what you called embodied problem solving yes right so um how how does that which which aspects of the predictive brain are these experiments exercising
0: well um it's not so simple to explain, the, to explain the videos that I've shown, but uh, just to recap, it's just a video of a climber. and uh, Maybe you know, but climbers prior to, a, uh, like prior to a competition, they have some time to look at the climbing wall that they will then climb during the competition. The nice point is that they see this climbing wall for the first time. And there are many in these climbing walls, there are many climbing holes uh, arranged uh, all over, all through the wall. And the climber have a, has a one minute or a few minutes for figuring out how to better climb this wall and uh, if you look at the video or if you look at the climbing competition you see uh, people uh, climbers really moving the arms uh, so, uh, such as to really anticipate the next moves they see moving the arms in one direction then the other direction, that's really a form of problem solving because they, they see the climbing wall for the first time they have to figure out a good plan for action. I call it problem solving not only planning because it's really complex there are many constraints, it depends on where you go uh, then you can reach or cannot reach the other hold. So you can also find in your mind many, many solutions, compare them. And uh, in this specific kind of setups, uh, uh, the hypothesis is that it is really the, the motor system that is governing this process. So expert climbers are really able to anticipate the the force they can they they have to put into this motor act. They can really anticipate a lot of proprioceptive information. They can really figure out if a a hold is in in their reach or out of reach, if this hold is too little to be really grasped. If it is too far away for them, then they have to take another route. So that's uh, I call it embodied problem solving for many reasons. So one reason is that you, you really use knowledge of your body of your motor system to figure out how to better solve this problem and uh, another reason is that it's also overtly embodied in that you really use your body your body movements as a scaffold as a help a helping tool for solving the problem that's a bit tricky to explain without the video but in a sense by simply moving your yourself you don't need to to keep everything into your memory you use your body as part of the problem solving process
1: OK, but now you could also see it as a form of, let's say, motor programming, that you say, look, I'm, I am I have to execute a, mo- a movement sequence very rapidly, um, and I'm just going to now rehearse this movement sequence so it can sort of automatically trigger one set of behavioral or motion, m- motor patterns after the other, and it can climb up the wall more rapidly
0: yeah that's that's part of the, that's part of the story so the point is forming this motor program mm-hmm. uh, the the reason why i call it an embodied problem solving is that the solution is not so trivial so the point is that you have to to Try to form this motor program by assembling uh, par- uh, partially uh, uh, so partial skills that you used in the past in novel ways. So there is a lot of flexibility in this new assemblage of motor or, or or small motor programs.
1: Yeah, but the problem problem solving would suggest that there is also, let's say, a goal state in the world that you want to achieve in order that you also have to manipulate aspects of that world. Yeah. Well, in this case, it's essentially. Um, making sure your body goes through a certain sequence of motions. So how would would your view on embodied problem solving then generalize to problem solving in general? Because I would assume that you want to identify some more, let's say, generic aspects of problem solving as opposed to specialized aspects of, of problem solving.
0: Yeah, okay. So th- there are two parts of, of, of this story. So one part is that even in that case, even in this climbing f- Uh, example you have a goal so the goal is reaching the top and then uh, it is not simply uh, running through a trajectory but also finding out which is the good trajectory so it's uh, not so not so different from the tower of london or other typical problem solving setup so you have a goal state And you have uh, uh, many, many sequences of moves that you can do. And you explore this this space of possibilities. But the trick is that you explore it in intelligent ways. So you Mm -hmm. don't simply try out all of them. You really use your expertise to find out how to better explore this. Mm -hmm. The second point is that you really use knowledge incorporated into your body, your motor programs, to figure out what are the constraints of the problem. So the the climbing problem has many constraints because, as I said before, if you are uh, too much to the left of the climbing wall, you cannot reach any more the, right, the holes on the right, or vice versa if you if you jump too high you can you cannot probably uh, uh, make your body stiff enough to 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 really hold the climbing hole, so there are many constraints that that you you really uh, you really discover while solving the problem by reenacting this motor knowledge that's my my point mm-hmm. and the second part of the answer was m- about how much this uh, generalizes to more complex and abstract problem solving so well f- first of all, this is just uh, a nice video that I showed just for illustrating the possibility of solving problems by reusing more motor knowledge or sensory motor knowledge. It could also be affective knowledge. So knowledge incorporated into the same models that you use for acting in the external world. Mm -hmm. So I think that uh, as a general strategy, that's the way we should look at higher cognition. So the, the challenge is looking at how you solve higher quality skills such as problem solving in abstract domains by reusing uh, these uh, strategies that you acquired to uh, that you acquired so as to uh, efficiently deal with the external environment. Mm-hmm. So when you have these sensory motor strategies, uh, then uh, probably our earlier un- ancient uh, evolutionary uh, uh, ancestors, they had only these simple strategies to deal with their pre- with their current situ- situation. Situations. Whereas higher cognitive skills is mostly about uh, very complex, abstract situations, non perceptually available events, distal goals. But the, the challenge is uh, seeing how simple strategies that uh, we used in the past. To, to survive in the environment can be uh, sophisticated and reused in these more complex cognitive domains. So that's a challenge. My example was just to illustrate the possibility that you can really solve problems by reusing systematically knowledge incorporated in, into your internal models in an intelligent way. And that allows also for a lot of flexibility. It's not for planning the next action, but also for solving very complex problems.
1: Yes, yeah, but that, that's a bit a wish, right? That's the wish. And yes. Then, then the question is, um, how far are you in in realizing that that wish because uh, so to first of the climber in the climber case, do you see a big difference between expert and novice climbers
0: yeah absolutely yes mm-hmm. so p- part of the story uh, which is also one of the reasons why i'm interested in it is that in a sense it is uh, the 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 expertise that not only modulates the climbing ability, but also the the ability to think about problems. Mm-hmm. And that's supporting for the embodied cognition view or for the view that it's really knowledge incorporated into your motor system that helps you not only in executing the actions, but also, for instance, in imagining the actions, in reusing the repertoire for solving problems. Mm-hmm. At the same time, we have evidence that knowledge incorporated in your motor system also helps you understanding what other people is doing. Right. So that's the idea in a sense.
1: Yeah, that that's in the step into the social cognition component. But in some sense, what you're saying, look, the standard view would be, let's say we have we perceive the world, uh, we have some sort of high fidelity in the end interpretation of the world on the basis which we make decisions and perform action. But now the consequence of what you're saying is that look, I'm actually acting in this world, and the way I act in the world is now modulating or, or directly filtering the way i'm going to perceive this world absolutely So, the, so yes. sort of the, the processing goes backwards in that sense so the expert climbing is looking at this world very differently as a novice climber yes and you have evidence for that uh
0: well we yes we performed them uh well of course we have a li- tiny evidence up to now but i think the, this evidence points in the right direction so one memory study that we performed comparing uh, novice and expert climbers Uh, so we we simply asked to these uh, novice and expert climbers to look at two or three climbing routes one simple that both of them were able to execute one difficult that only the expert group was able to do and one impossible which was not climbable actually it was not really a climbing route it was just a random um, displacement of climbing holds and uh, so the task was simply uh, remembering the climbing holes in the right sequence. What we found is that in the easy condition that both uh, novice and expert were able to uh, to climb, both were also able to remember quite well. So there was no 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 evidence for uh, for a better remembering for experts while for the difficult route only the experts were really able to uh, to remember it well, and this, uh, in our opinion, this points to the fact that really the way experts uh, structure the perceptually also the situation uh, can also help in the in this memory task. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we had this control condition in which, uh, for the impossible route, in that route, we did not find any advantage for the experts because it, this ability, this increased memory ability, is really tied to the climbability of the wall. It's not a generic ability to remember climbing holes without context. But to, to respond completely to your question, I would say that this uh, uh, this this sensory motor approach uh, so this sensory motor influence of, of thinking on cognition to me at least it acts on two time scales at least two time scales one time scale is learning and development so the point is that because i'm i have some sensory motor skills then i change the way i perceive the world so i structure my memory and my perceptual uh, abilities in such a way that then supports better cognitive abilities so that acts on a longer time scale of learning and development. The second way the, the sensory motor system supports cognition is more in the online cognition. Because I can reenact my motor problems right now, my, my motor programs right now, so I can use them so as to support, for instance, imagery. Mm-hmm or action perception. So there are two sides of the same coin. So in a sense, this framework predicts, predicts that if you increase your sensory motor abilities in one domain, then you really shape your perception, your memory, and uh, all your cognitive processing. Mm-hmm. And then you are also better able to, to run imaginary, imaginary uh, experiments, based on this motor expertise that you can now reenact.
1: Right, but then would the expert climbers, Uh, recognize the unclimbable wall more rapidly than the novices, novice climbers?
0: Well, uh, probably, well, if the task is exactly recognized whether or not it is is climbable or unclimbable, that's the task. Mm -hmm. If this is the task, well, of, of course, this is a bit of a tricky task, because unclimbable Could be is not such a clear concept, but anyway, yes, I would say that in that case, what will happen is just that the 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 climbers try to climb it mentally, so they run this imaginary climbing simulation, and then because the expert will will anticipate some failure in climbing because they have high confidence in their internal models, they will say no, 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 this cannot be climbed, whereas for the novices. Maybe they will try out to 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 anticipate. They will also fail, but without noticing the well, we, without trusting too much their simulations. So mm. that's that would will be my right.
1: But now still so a problem for 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 this uh, point of view is that um, you could say, look, the, the climber is a highly specialized uh, human being, um, so it's not very surprising that that they have certain cognitive capabilities because they have been overtrained. in in dealing with certain kinds of environments like climbing walls so how how would you see this sort of the uh, but 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 you want to look at this as an example where you say well it's actually very basic sensory motor patterns or it's really action itself and the way we generate action from which the rest of cognition is sort of bootstrapped or is is uh, depends upon Yes. It's constrained by. Yeah, that's exactly So how is it going to work exactly? How do you see that work?
0: Well, uh, I would say that now we don't have any any perfect story yet, but the point is really that action and the goals implied in the action and the predictions implied in the action, they are really key to cognition and to develop increasingly more complex cognitive skills. Mm So uh, at the beginning, so that could be a simple story. So at the beginning, the brain is simply organized around these uh, goal selection and specification and selection tasks. So they have to integrate information from the external world, from the memory, from affective states to very, very quickly uh, jump into uh, a good action selection. And to do that, as I was told before, uh, you mostly rely into your internally generated goal, goal state, affective processes, uh, attentional processes. The stimulus help you, but then it's the brain, which is autonomous, is doing the job. Mm-hmm. But then, as the sensory motor uh, abilities of this primitive architecture develop over time and increase your abilities, they increase their ability to control the external world and to predict it. Mm-hmm. So they start uh, incorporating more and more knowledge, more and more uh, uh, st- uh, also structure from the external environment into their predictions, into their uh, motor control actions.
2: Right. So
1: how, how are you going to to validate this prediction? Is it a pure experimental exercise or are there other ways to get this validated?
0: The framework, you mean? Yeah. Well, the framework, that, that's uh, much more a, a lifelong uh, research program, if you want, because the, the, uh, the we are trying to do many many validations a a, a few empirical data of course already exist if you think at the literature how similar the brain networks for imagery and uh, for uh, execution or for motor preparation they are so you already see that uh, some mental operations are really supported by the the sensory motor system in the brain so that that's some evidence Uh, There there is evidence, well, there there are also patient studies that say Mm. that uh, in some conditions, uh, the the imagined action cannot be really stopped from being overtly executed. So that's another part of the story, because in this story, it uh, it is the internalization of the predictive mechanism that really supports cognition. So you first predict predict things in the external world, then you internalize this capability of predicting, and this eventually lets you to rehearsing entire sequences of action without executing them. Mm -hmm. But then a prediction of this framework is that if you really do this covert mental uh, imagery, if you want, or this covert predictive mechanism, and you cannot uh, really separate these internal processes from uh, the, the overt execution, then this implies that what you imagine you immediately do. And there is evidence that this unfortunately happens in Mm -hmm. uh, in patients with bilateral parietal uh, lesions. Mm -hmm. And uh, other evidence of, of this close connection between what you think and what you do also exist for utilization behavior, for instance, utilization behavior, behavior patients, they are not really able to inhibit their motor programs for grasping objects, and uh, just reacting in a very uh, quick way to what they say. So this, uh, this tells a story on on how uh, this more um, abstract thinking part uh, is tied to the sensory motor programs.
1: Okay but now this this this, this in, how do you what's the role of this this uh, the internal simulation in that case because on the one hand you're saying well we run these internal simulations apparently they they would run in parallel um, because but on the other hand if you look at the deficits that you mentioned in in, in these patients it's not that they are executing um, you know a whole sequence of actions in parallel right in the utilization behavior you would grasp a single object and the whole organism would be focused on that so can we really is, so therefore is, is this kind of, of of evidence coming more from the clinic from clinical studies really supporting this hypothesis of internal simulation and the role of action in the structure of cognition
0: well for, for the first evidence I mentioned of the patient who was unable to uh, inhibit the imaginative the imaginate action that that's quite clear. clear link, mm-hmm. because then what you think is what you do. So if you imagine, the uh, let's say, pointing to one direction, then you point in that direction, you cannot really stop from doing that. So in, in this framework that I'm supporting, the idea is that you run this imaginary simulation of pointing, we, and this is typically done by also inhibiting the overt motor execution, mm-hmm. but if you have a deficit, you cannot inhibit that output, it rapidly turns out into an overt action. In the utilization behavior, the link is, uh, is, is tiny in a sense. Uh, the idea is that uh, w- one idea in the, in the literature of affordances, also the canonical neurons uh, literature, is that when you look uh, uh, an object, then you automatically, uh, um, let's say, prepotentiate the, some motor programs that are good for interacting with that object. Okay? And, but typically, uh, this does not result into an overt execution. So in a sense, this is just a, a, a prepotentiation, which can be also interpreted in terms of simulating grasping this cup in front of me. So in that case, I'm not reasoning about simulating the action. I, this is just a more automatic process mm-hmm. of mentally rehearsing of the good action that I can do. Again, if you don't have this, uh, the, this, uh, the, um, let's say this mechanism working well, you cannot really inhibit also the overt execution. I would say that while in my first example of the imaginary situation, the link is clearer, in this second example, is less clear. But to me, it's another supporting example that your internal mental process is always oriented toward anticipating possibilities for action. Mm-hmm. In some cases, this is just a, a simple automatic process that tells you what is possible to do. In other cases, this is more uh, uh, this is more intentional uh, imagery. So you really r- run long-term simulation, imaging sequences of actions. Uh, uh, but this, there is, I see a continuity in this. Mm-hmm. So I see. So the good thing about this framework is that you do not have to postulate any different set of cognitive representation for different tasks, any module for thinking that is separate, completely segregated from the action control and specification but you have a continuum and a continuum reuse of the same abilities in more complex ways.
1: Uh, okay. But then would you see this as being, let's say, layered in some way? That you have, let's say, sensory motor capabilities of let's say varying levels of complexity with some sort of discrete steps between them? Or is really a continuum?
0: Well, uh, that's a a hard question. Uh, One important thing in this framework that probably answers partially to to your question is that uh, we have to probably focus, we have to talk about actions as the unity and also we know that action can be specified at different levels of detail so there, there are actions that are specified at the level of movement of a single finger whereas there are other actions in which the action but also the, the goal of the action is specified at the more abstract level that is grasping this, uh, mm-hmm. this object, this cup whereas there is a, still another level of action and intention associated which is uh, uh, let's say drinking from this cup, so the actions, uh, all these, uh, all these uh, uh, levels are, are in a sense they they are, uh, they support one another, in a sense. So of course the more abstract actions have to be finally uh, specified in term in more uh, fine grained terms of the movements of the fingers. Mm-hmm. But this this is a structure, a cognitive structure that has different layers probably, or. We don't know exactly, but at least uh, you have a big uh, structure in which you can, uh, you can really specify actions at different levels of uh, complexity, at different level of abstraction with more complex intentions. And the arguments uh, that we do is not that we always use the, the lowest level, the lowest mm-hmm. possible levels. So at some point, you can really think and uh, do some imagery with by using actions and their associated intentions at intermediate or even at abstract levels. So that's probably answers.
1: Right. So now, one way to test some of these ideas, you you were performing and presenting experiments on joint action. Yes. Right. So, um, so so how does joint action now help you to understand um, this model of of cognition and action in the end?
0: Well, the reason why I I went into joint action uh, in my presentation is that, uh, as I told before. Uh, I would, like, I would like to come out with a convincing story or more complex cognitive abilities developed based on simpler cognitive abilities. So here the steps that I presented are, okay, I start doing my action, but then uh, uh, I'm in a social domain, and so maybe I need to do some action together with you. So in this case, I can reuse a lot of what I know about my action system to to anticipate you and to uh, to get into your intentions. So to get rid uh, of your motor system or your motor action of your intentions. In this case, this is just the beginning of a story in which I I reuse my sensory motor knowledge or my uh, action execution and prediction abilities to get uh, into more and more complex situations. In this case, it is a a social situation, but it could be even a non-social situation. Uh, Still another step in this this passage is that, okay, now I'm I'm able to use my uh, predictive abilities to predict you. I use my body and my action system as a model to understand your body and your action system. And uh, and then I maybe use uh, uh, these abilities to plan long-term joint action to do that, then I have planned some more coordinating actions, so I have to plan how to really achieve them in practice, I have maybe to to invent some way to better coordinate with you, mm-hmm. and maybe at some point you invent more and more complex things. You extend the boundaries of your control to the control of my body or to the control of our body or our combined actions. Mm-hmm. And maybe also to the control of your internal states so your beliefs, your uh, intentions. So I do some action to change your intentions. So not only I control my body, I now control me and you Mm and I control you. And I know that uh, even after this interaction, you will have some new beliefs. I extend my control abilities control uh, capabilities from myself to you. Mm-hmm. So that that's uh, the the very beginning of a story in which we begin to to go into more and more complex cognitive abilities starting from simpler ones.
1: Right. But um and so for the for the joint action experiment you you were looking at uh, hand movements essentially. Right? You yeah. were tracking hand mostly, movements mostly, yes. Yeah? And then you also built a model of that. Yes. Okay. So so, which aspect now of the of the joint action control of hands do you capture in this in this model?
0: Well, uh, if we think at the model specifically, then, uh, well, in a sense, the key idea was the, of the model is that it's not completely is right? is not new. There are ma- many mo- many similar models, but the idea, in a sense, is that I, I really use my own action abilities as a model to understand your action right now so the model can can predict the for instance the hand trajectory but at the same time it can also uh, give some hint into your intentions and goals because i know what are the the goals that are linked to my Mm -hmm. motor actions
1: how does the model know that
0: well uh, let's imagine i see you moving your arm towards a cup OK, so now the hypothesis is that I run an internal simulation of the possible actions that I could be that are quite compatible with the actions that I'm seeing. I start predicting better and better your trajectory. And then let's see that this model fits quite well, the data. So your hand trajectory, because I know what is the goal of my hand action, I also can have some hypothesis of what is the goal. So because I know that my trajectory eventually reaches the cap and then grabs, grasps it, then I can also infer or at least hypothesize that you will do the same. So I also know what is your goal. Mm-hmm. That's the key idea.
1: But then the, 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 the intentional labeling of the sequence is then with reference to your own action or that is with, in reference in some way to observer, observing the other.
0: So the 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 idea of these kind of models is that you use uh, uh, what you know about the link between the trajectory of arms and your goal. You know them because you execute them. You use exactly the same link to get to, to get some understanding of, of right. what the other is doing. So that's the idea. So
1: you need some sort of you have first some sort of self monitoring system that develops a self model that you then generalise to the other. This would be the step.
0: Exactly. So uh, I will not not necessarily call it a self-monitoring in that you you simply need a, a forward model and an inverse model so you need some control capabilities for yourself and then you transfer you use this uh, exactly as a model to understand the other mm-hmm. so that's more or less the key idea and this idea is pursued by many people actually also right mm-hmm.
1: yeah okay so then um so what's do you feel confident then that this original idea you had about this more, let's say, embodied problem solving, action as grounding, cognition, um, what tells you in this joint action task where you now are generalizing this model to social interaction, that this is working? Because in some sense, I could also argue, well, it works because you've been imposing, you've really made the task pretty abstract, right? Because then I'm just observing these, these hands moving in one plane um, I don't have to do anything about, let's say, invariant recognition of, of posture, of limbs and so on. So uh, to really now generalize this to, let's say, a realistic scenario where, where you have to observe another human moving about in space, um, is that just a, a small matter of programming or are there some fundamental steps still missing?
0: Well, um, to answer this question probably we have to go into a biggest, bigger picture. So the bigger picture uh, to me is that now, although I have emphasized these motor predictions, that's not the whole story. So in a sense, uh, my opinion is that the brain is a smart guy. So the brain always uses all the knowledge that it has, at least in principle, to do the job. So the point here is that in in more realistic uh, uh, joint action or action observation scenarios, there is a lot, a lot, a lot of information available. There is perceptual information, uh, which is available. There is some context information, such as, for instance, I see what are the objects within your personal space so that's my prior uh, i i can have a lot of prior information on you for instance i know that you you guys you you like very much the the beer mm-hmm. so if there are in, in front of you you see i see some beer and this is coke. i would maybe anticipate that you will grasp the beer
2: mm-hmm.
0: and then i also use this sensory mo- this motor simulation that I told Uh, Because it is also useful. So uh, I'm not assuming that the brain only uses this motor simulation part. It uses the the motor simulation to support this action understanding, because in this context, it is very salient and very useful. Mm -hmm. Why is it very useful? Because, uh, well, I have a very good model of my body. So it's a very good model, very good predictive model for your movements. Of course, I, I have also some percept, purely perceptual predictive mechanisms that mm-hmm. can help me predicting you. But I would say that in the case of, uh, uh, of uh, human understanding, the model of myself is a very, very good model of you mm-hmm. in most cases. So this is what the brain will, will use the, the most. Right. But if you go into the biggest picture, you can think of it as a big Bayesian process happening. So in a Bayesian process, you basically use all the information you have, information which comes first, then can be also used as a prior to run the rest of the process. And then uh, all the new information that is collected is fused in, a, in an intelligent way. Intelligent here means that it is weighted depending on its uncertainty. Mm-hmm. So if the, if the motor system is a very good model The information it provides will be used very much. Mm -hmm. If this information is not good or it is failing, then it will not be be used very much.
1: Yeah, but you seem to now to drift away a little bit from your original uh, proposal because I thought you started out by saying, look, cognition is really predicated on action." yeah right but now you seem to say something like well motor the motor system is one of many sources of information you could consider because the bayesian system basically uses all the knowledge it has and it has knowledge about the motor system but also about let's say perceptual systems Um, so uh, or from memory so so uh, aren't you a bit drifting now in in, in that argument
0: well i i don't think so because uh, as i told before uh, the way you collect this information in the first place is through learning and through learning the motor system has really influenced you a lot so also through learning this uh, this perceptual information that i have i have acquired it by also interacting with the world Mm -hmm. so the motor system uh, really is used very much not only online as i told now but also during learning of course we we don't have to be radical on that so we we don't think that only the motor system does something in the brain there are many parts of the brain that are are used and probably the point is is, is and the point is slightly different the point is not all about the motor system so the point is that the ability that you have to interact with the external world which can be supported by many systems in the brain prominently by the motor system mm-hmm. but well by many systems you reuse them consistently to achieve new cognitive abilities, so to develop and, and then to achieve new, new goals specified at different levels.
1: Okay, but um, so then you're saying, well, action, let's say, impregnates all other aspects yes. of, of cognition and perception Through learning. because of learning. Okay, and this, so it either
0: has a direct and otherwise an indirect impact. Yeah, yeah, there are both. I would say that the first one is through learning. The second one is during overt interaction with the external world. And then through the internalization of this action and prediction process, mm-hmm. you can imagine new scenarios. But this doesn't mean that when you can have some motor simulation, you close your eyes, you don't, mm-hmm. you don't use perceptual information. That would be foolish from right. the point of view of the brain. And, mm-hmm. and th- there is an important uh, point of this view is that, uh, as you know, in action understanding, there are many views. Uh, one view is that you, you, I call this the mirrorist view, is that the first thing that is active is the recognition of the goal. Then the recognition of the goal in the mirror system, of course, it eventually uh, helps also predicting the action. There is a second view which is uh, related, but in some sense also very different, because this view is that what you do first is prediction. So it is prediction which comes first, and prediction helps then recognizing the goal. and still, another view is that all these motor, motor simulation things—they are not so important because we, we really use much more abstract knowledge of what the other person should do given the context. So that's more theological knowledge, if you want. Well, in the view I'm supporting, uh, there is—it is not so useful to say to say what is more used what is less used. So uh, what comes first can be used as a prior for the rest of the things. And, wh- and what is more uh, reliable is used more than the other things. It happens, at least to me, that this motor simulation in that specific context, they are very reliable. Mm-hmm. This is why I think they play a prominent role, not because of some categorical distinctions. And also uh, relating to this issue of what comes first, go recognition or prediction, that's really depending on the task. So if I have a big prior knowledge of what the most likely goals will be, then it is probably that I will force some some hypothesis or some probability distribution over those goals much before starting predicting you. Predicting mm-hmm. you. But if I cannot see what are the goals, let's say the objects you can grasp, I will probably start by predicting and by prediction I will get into some hypothesis mm-hmm. of what is your goal. So everything can be very flexible.
1: Okay but but you are saying ideally you 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 take a model based approach towards yes in this case also social perception you want to say look yes. you want to get to the goal of the intentional state of the other agent as quickly as possible and from there you just reconstruct um, the rest of the action.
0: Um yeah yes in some sense so Typically, I want to go into the goal when this is useful for my task. Mm -hmm. So if my task is uh, understanding which cap will you grasp, that's the goal information that I need. Whereas if I don't want to hurt you, it's more the trajectory that I want to know. So so, uh, for instance, when we are driving, I don't really need to know where are you going. Mm-hmm. I don't care. I don't want to to <laughs> to cross you <laughs> or to or to hurt you. So it, it's not so much the goal or, of what you are doing that is important, but it is the trajectory that you are doing right now. Mm-hmm. Of course, also the goal is interesting because the goal tells me a lot about your trajectory. So uh, I would say that the what you ask to what you ask so, to, what you want to infer is very much task dependent, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and as, as a side effect, you will also infer many other things that right. give you useful priors or give useful hints. So that, that's my. But my now,
1: view. In, in you don't only run experiments, right? Also to test these these ideas, you also use robots. Yes. So so how have robots helped you to um, to make progress on these issues?
0: Well, uh, yes, we are running many uh, computational and also robotic um, experiments. So one thing that we have uh, that we have recently seen is that, yeah, probably the, uh, this is very interesting, again, for the argument that more and more complex cognitive abilities can be developed on top of this sensory motor interaction. One thing that we are investigating with computational models and robots is the ability to signal in social context. So just to explain this very quickly, the point is that if we are supposed to do one joint action, okay, let's say building some tower together uh, but of red and blue blocks okay one red one blue one red one blue okay now we are interacting we are supposed to do that and uh, we are able to coordinate to do that but now let's imagine only i know what is the goal what is the tower to be built you don't know so one thing that we are investigating with robots is how we come out with some good coordination without not, with only one person knowing the task. Mm-hmm. In that case, uh, without using overt or linguistic communication. So what we have seen also in robot that's a very hard problem. Because w- when you run computational robotic models, then you put your ideas into practice, and you see that by simply predict- predicting the action of the others, doesn't work too much. Because then uh, I start predicting you, but uh, so the guy who doesn't know the job has to predict the actions of the other but it, it is all, always uh, one step later. Mm-hmm. It's too late so it doesn't work very well. So we, we come out with the idea that the, the guy who knows the job can also in some sense uh, support the predictive processes of the other or help the other in some sense. Uh, so how would you how would I help my other robot? Well w- one simple one simple example is that I can make my behavior more predictable. Uh, such as uh, or, or may i can make my behavior more informative for you such as i, I can use my my choice of, uh, of action to decide, to letting you understand very well what are my intentions so you typically try to understand my intentions but if the uncertainty is too high i can in some sense help you mm-hmm. by with the wise choice of actions that can be right. very intuitive but it
1: could also be a way to test hypotheses about the other it's not about yes. making your behavior more predictable it must be a way to test whether the other has the right model of you.
0: Absolutely. Yes, that's the idea. So we, we designed... No, it's not, but it's not the same thing, right? No, no, no. They are, well, um, they are related. So in one sense, also in my example, uh, let's call the the guy who has the knowledge the leader and the other the follower. So in a sense, the leader can have some uncertainty on what what are the models of the follower. Mm-hmm. So of course, he can use some uh, actions and, uh, and monitor the reactions of the other person just to, to know what are the good models of the, what are the models of the other mm-hmm. agents, who, what is he doing?? Right. And uh, when uh, the leader infers that the follower does not have good models, then he will fail, then he can, uh, in a sense, try to help the, the follower. So the two processes are interconnected because by so uh, by monitoring the process and by uh, by always trying to to keep track of the uncertainty of the other person, you really can plan uh, helping actions right. but now the, the thing was interesting that so we go from
1: action now to interaction, yes and in in your research um, plan, that's really a very crucial step, right because you 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 really s- seem to think that or propose that. It's by getting a handle on interaction that you really can get to, let's say, a general, more generalized understanding yes. of, of social behavior and also cultures. Yeah. So how, how should I see that generalization exactly?
0: So, well, uh, the point is that I think that for, uh, for many disciplines, such as the study of language and communication, the natural starting point would be naturalistic joint action that will be a nice starting point because now the hypothesis is that the mechanism that we that we use for interacting with the others in sensory motor domains then they provide a scaffold so they provide some help uh, for for developing let's say for instance linguistic communication the hypothesis which has been called by Levinson this more interaction engine hypothesis is that By simply interacting interacting in the external world, we really have some strong uh, pragmatic abilities to infer the action of the other, to do some truth-taking, to do some joint attention, to anticipate the action and the intentions of the others. And this is a strong uh, universal basis also for language communication. So he hypothesizes, for instance, that children use this interaction engine, to develop, uh, uh, so to understand and to learn their mm-hmm. natural language, and that's exactly a point that we want to make. Uh, so we started studying this kind of joint actions. Then we come out with uh, with a formulation of the problem in which the two persons happen to solve a joint action optimization process. Mm-hmm. Uh, This joint action optimization process means that it is not only uh, so I don't have to care only about my action, but also the joint outcome of the action, because I have to care about the joint action and the joint outcome of our action, which is a joint goal, then I also have to care about you. This is why in some cases, uh, as I told before, I help you, not because I am altruistic. I'm helping you because by helping you, I help the joint goal. Mm-hmm. So I'm, uh, I'm sorry, but I'm not so much altruistic. That's all individualistic. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I think that this helping action, is is really the first primitive form of a communicative action mm-hmm. because as i told before i can make my action more observable by you more predictable by you more understandable or more diagnostic for you. Diagnostic here simple mean, simply means that if you have two hypotheses on what I'm doing, I make my action, uh, let's say, for instance, I exaggerate the movement, such as to make you understand very quickly what I what is my right intention. So that's diagnostic. But that exaggeration that I do it's really a form of communication. Mm-hmm. That's really the bootstrap also of all other forms of communication, including linguistic communication. So the general hypothesis here, this is why I'm interested in this this passage from joint action to more complex form of cognition, is that by interacting, because there are some constraints, some joint joint constraints that we have to fulfill, then uh, in this joint optimization framework, it's quite obvious that I have to do something also for you, for your Mm -hmm. sake. Right. And in our formulation, that, that, that means that in addition to having some motor intention, we also have some communicative intention. Mm-hmm. The communicative intention uh, is, uh, has a cost, because, for instance, for exaggerating the movement, I pay a cost in terms of biomechanical cost or something. So such as, for instance, when, when I am in a, in a noisy pipe, I have to over-articulate or if you think of the mother is, for ex, for example, when you the child directed speech, so you exaggerate. That's done for the sake of the other. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, we say that's done for the sake of achieving a good joint goal, which is right. understanding one another. But that's really the first the first form uh, of motor of communicative intention mm-hmm. that I have. So,
1: for you, it's really the signalling mechanisms that would allow the bootstrapping of communication exactly. and, and language, right? So, but that's still a, a project that will be realized in the future.
0: Yes, but uh, I would say that the important component is always uh, the missing one from the current studies, which is the more pragmatic component of language. So the pragmatics of language, as the, uh, the early pragmatists, uh, which study language, know very, very well, so the pragmatic component is prominent, because then the, the grandigo symbols, uh, the grammar, of course, they are hard problems, but the pragmatics, they are the most important part, right. such, as, uh, uh, the, such as, for instance, knowing what requesting means, knowing what uh, uh, telling means, or promising means, mm-hmm. or... Uh, or all these uh, joint uh, uh, joint action and joint attention tour taking mechanisms, all of them uh, provide a big scaffolding for the, the emergence of linguistic communication. Right,
1: but, uh, so, so I, I got that. But now, so to finish up, two, two questions. Um, so you have a, you have this really big ambitious program, and in the end, you will you, generate the whole of culture from action, which is which is going to be still uh, yeah. a, a long trajectory. But yes. you're well on your way. But but in, in doing this, what would be Giovanni's law?
0: Giovanni's law? Yeah. Okay. Well, my law would be maybe uh, starting understanding cognitions uh, from uh, from the primitive equipment of our uh, ancestors. So mm-hmm. that, that would be more evolu- an evolutionary route towards the more complex cognitive skills. Well, I, I can probably give three examples that are very simple in the in the three domains that we target now. One is the social domain that we have discussed. So you start from controlling your body, your actions, to controlling uh, our actions, to controlling then your mental states. That's communication, in a sense. Communication is really putting something into your brain. Mm-hmm. And then you also develop culture and pedagogy, for instance, for controlling that at a very, very longer timescale. So by developing some culture... Uh, the human beings can really control the behavior of many people over millennia, probably, right. and also by pedagogy. So that's in the social domain. Uh, you can see this also in the control of the external world on on this uh, environmental scaffolding or, uh, or on the environmental shaping. So we we start from the control of our body to the control maybe of the reality of our peripersonal space with some objects and then you start uh, controlling tools for instance for doing more complex actions and uh, but then tools you have also to build tools. Maybe at some point you build the city of Barcelona. So then, in a sense, you extend the boundaries of your control, from the control of your body to the control of uh, the whole environment. We humans really modify our environment very much, such that then they support much better our mm-hmm. cognition. So that's another story, not only in the social domain, also in the environmental domain. Right. The third the third and last one is in the more uh, thought domain, or the cognitive control domain. So you just start from controlling your action, and then... You you end up in some way uh, by controlling your thought processes and by controlling your cognition over uh, long 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 time scales for mm-hmm. instance one example that i do well uh, let's imagine i want to become uh, a prominent scientist which apparently doesn't doesn't happen right now so i have to control my behavior for 20 years maybe so the way i do that is by well by cognitive control in a sense by setting some goal states into my mind then then control my behavior on longer 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 time scales Mm -hmm. then again you have this control of the body the or or the control of my short-term actions that become the control of my entire life Mm -hmm. and uh, so i i I have given three examples of how this uh, research program i would say will start from Very simple sensory motor abilities to very very complex uh, abilities that uh, cross the boundaries of many disciplines: sociology on the one end, and uh, let's say architecture on Mm -hmm. the other end, or maybe the study of consciousness on the other end. So, of course, and
1: you have even integrated it in your own career planning. Yeah, of course. (laughs) (laughs) So the last thing, the very last question, then is uh, prediction. So, if if we come back then five years from now as a famous scientist to the summer school again. so what what's the one prediction we can uh, we can test on you by then so what's the one prediction you would like to make today that you feel very strongly about that you and we can ask you about five years from now
0: okay, so about the future of this field or about the... your your research program okay so uh, about my research program so well I think I've elucidated it the principal, uh, my key goal, which is understanding higher cognition, uh, how how our cognition is based on sensory motor Mm -hmm. uh, and predictive abilities. So the prediction is that at least we will have some nice demonstration in these three fields that I've mentioned before, much stronger demonstration than the ones that we have now. Mm -hmm. And, And from that, we can really try to build an understanding of how the brain implements higher cognitive skills. So. All right. At least one demonstration for each of the three fields. Mm-hmm. That's,
1: oh, that's very good. So Giovanna Pazzullo, thank you very much for this conversation. Thank you, Paul. The CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biometics and Biohybrid Systems, a project funded by the European Seventh Research Framework Programme. Mm-hmm. More interviews, recorded lectures, or upcoming conferences in the field of biomimetics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening.